Today we're looking at one of Jesus's most famous teachings. Um, so this is part six of Jesus's teachings. Um, and this one, I think most people have heard at some point in their lives. It's often called the golden rule. And it says, Matthew chapter seven, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, you might have heard this in different formats because this idea, right, of the golden rule is, is not unique to Christianity. We see this concept um, throughout pretty much all the major religions. For example, and I won't go through all of them, but just as a few examples here, um, in Judaism, there was um, Hillel um, who has said, once you treat, uh, sorry, let me read that. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. Um, and then you have Hinduism, um, the idea of karma, right? Is that what you do comes back to you. So this is the sum of duty. Do not to others, which is done to thee, would cause thee pain. Um, in Buddhism, the idea, hurt not others with that which pains yourself. Um, in Islam, none of you has faith until he loves for his brother or his neighbor what he loves for himself. Um, and Confucius said, do not, do not do unto others what you would not want others to do to you. Um, in Roman philosophy and Jainism and Sikhism, etc., you see the same concept repeated. And so the idea of the golden rule is a universal one. But I want to focus today on what Jesus meant when he used this as, as his concluding remark for the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus mean by saying, do to others what you would have them do to you? And I want to first of all um, say that we, we call it the golden rule, but it's actually not a rule, just like the rest of Jesus' teachings. We like rules, and I think this is why over the years it's been called the golden rules. Because we like rules because they then we know what the boundaries are so that we can bend them or break them or keep them in order to get what we want. But Jesus deconstructed this mindset in the Sermon of the Mount by saying that entering the kingdom is not a formula, right? It's not this eight-step process and then voila, you're saved. Jesus wanted to, sh to teach people that entering the kingdom of God is actually a journey. It's, it's a partnership. It's a relationship. It's a cons consistent commitment to saying yes to following Jesus, right? Going where he goes, the, spending time with him, becoming like him. It's a very different process than just following the rules. Jesus' teachings are not a prescription of what to do, but it's a description of who to become and who he is and what he offers so that we can become that person. And that's why, if you remember, the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes, where he painted a picture of the kind of person who belongs in the kingdom of heaven. And so, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, etc. And if you're thinking, well, I'm not meek and merciful and pure in heart, so I don't belong in the kingdom, you're actually exactly who Jesus is inviting into the kingdom. Because 
you are poor in spirit. You recognize your need because you're hungering, thirsting after righteousness. You will be filled. And so Jesus uh, is once again deconstructing that idea that we have to be perfect or be good and keep all these rules in order to get to heaven. He's saying, no, if you're hungering for me and truth and, and righteousness and goodness and you recognize that you don't have it, perfect. Yours is the kingdom of heaven now. Because the kingdom of heaven is not just a place. It's a state of being. It's whenever and wherever we acknowledge that we want Jesus to be our king. And we say, I want to become a citizen of that kingdom. And that's why when you read the Beatitudes, you know, Jesus says that those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's in the present tense. It's not just the future promise of heaven, but it's that present promise and reality that when we say yes to Jesus, he is the king of our lives, and we have then the kingdom of heaven here and now lived out. And we live by the kingdom principles of Jesus dwelling with us. And I also like to think of this as, um, in addition to the, the concept of a kingdom, because we don't really um, experience that same thing today. We don't have kingdoms and lords and masters. Um, I, another analogy that I like to think of is, is that parent and child relationship. You know, we can kind of understand that a little bit better, that ideally parents are responsible for caring for their children, right? Providing the child a, a loving and safe place to learn values to live by. And the parents teach those values to, and by modeling them in their own behavior, by talking about them and teaching, and also providing and enforcing some ground rules in hopes that one day that child will be able to make good choices on their own, not because of the rules or because of the consequences for breaking them, but because they intrinsically agree that those rules and those values are good. And while the parents can exercise their authority to ensure that these rules are respected, they can't force that child to internally have those values, right? It's ultimately up to the child to decide who they want to become and what values they're going to live by. And all that parents can do is love that child and try to build a strong relationship with that child so that that child can come to them for hopefully advice and help and, and will continue to learn from the parents. You see, for a long time, people thought of God as someone who had a set of rules and enforced those rules and there were consequences for breaking those rules. And so people either obeyed out of fear or disobeyed and just kind of thought, oh, well, well. That's that, and, and went their own way. But Jesus came along and said, no, God is our Heavenly Father who, who loves us and longs to have an eternal relationship with us. And yes, He gives us laws to live by, but those are for our good, and those reflect the values that He's trying to write on our hearts and minds so that we intrinsically want to become that person who is like God, rather than you know, individuals who can't wait to break the rules once we're no longer under his authority. And that's why in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus takes the time to explain that it's not about the rule, you shall not murder, but it's about that anger in our hearts, right? It's, it's not the rule, don't commit adultery. It's about the lust in our heart. And, and Jesus says children of God aren't just modifying their behavior. They're surrendering their hearts to God on a daily basis to become a new creation. 
day by day walking with God, right? Taking that yoke means, you know, when two, two cows or oxen are, are yoked together, right? They're walking step by step. They're, they're traveling in the same direction. And so this idea that Jesus presents is not just us keeping laws in order to be saved or us trying to be good on our own, but it's about partnering with God, right? Walking alongside Jesus, letting him pull the hard bits and we're just following him. We're going along and being transformed by that truth into his image. So what is the truth about his teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12? Let's go back to it, right? What is Jesus trying to teach us? What does it mean to treat others the way that we want to be treated? And in order to answer this question, I want to go back into the context of the passage right before this. Um, you know, last time we looked at how Jesus said not to condemn. And he taught that we should first take the plank that is lodged in our eyes before we try to take the speck out of someone else's eye, right? And that's an example of how to treat people the way that we want to be treated. Seeing people the way that we want to be seen, right? With, with dignity and respect and honor. Speaking truth to them. Once we've examined our own hearts and can talk to them with that bias, and in genuine love. So right after that passage about not judging, Jesus then says this, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is not calling anyone a dog or a pig. He's just giving an illustration that you don't give dogs your important documents. You don't give pigs precious antiques, right? You give them food, dog food, pig food. You give them what's good for them. You give them what's safe for them to play with, right? And so when it comes to treating people the way that we want to be treated, discernment is needed, right? You, you don't just give um, everyone the same treatment. You, you, you don't, tr treating others the way that you want to be treated doesn't actually mean that you give them what you would want for yourself without thinking about what they need. Because something that is good for you might not be good for them. And I'm just going to give an example of um, a physical example. So for example, water. Water is good for you, right? We can agree that drinking water is good. But did you know that babies under six months can get seriously ill or even die if you give them water? because their kidneys aren't developed um, enough yet to handle water and that excess water then ends up in their bloodstream, which dilutes the bloodstream. It can cause hyponatremia and brain swelling and even death. And so babies under six months are only supposed to have formula or breast milk. That's it. For six months, that is all um, they're supposed to have. You also can't give babies under one honey. You know, honey is good for you. It's, you know, um, but babies under one, um, can't have honey because there's a certain type of bacteria that's in soil, dust and, and, um, honey and babies under one don't have a mature digestive system. And so the spores from the bacteria can really hurt the baby. Whereas once they're over one and their digestive tracts have developed, um, those spores can get eliminated. But yeah, so I'm just giving this example to show that not all good things are good for all people, 
right? And treating people the way you want to be treated means having the discernment and the wisdom to know what will truly help someone. It requires prayer and reflection and research and listening and learning. And it requires, once again, not that one-size-fits-all approach, but it's that partnership with Jesus. And that's why it's not a rule, because a ruler, right, has exact measurements, and it's mathematical, and it's predictable. But because the golden rule is not a rule, but a relationship with Jesus, where you listen to his guidance and his promptings and his wisdom to know how to treat different people um, differently at different times. So that what may be right for someone may be wrong for someone else. And what was right yesterday might not be right today. This is how Jesus lived and ministered himself. You know, for example, he didn't reveal all truth to all people all at once. When Jesus uh, talked to the disciples and they confessed that he was the Messiah, he confirmed, yes, I am, but don't tell anybody. And and the implication is don't tell anyone yet, right? And so Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, Mark chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, Luke chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. I don't have time to read all of those, but I'm giving them to you as references. Jesus says, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah, Later on, he says to tell, but right now he says, don't tell. Also, Jesus healed people, and sometimes he would tell them, don't tell anybody, right? Mark chapter 1, verse 40 to 44, um, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Also, when Jesus rebuked demons out of people, he, he told the, commanded the demons not to reveal who he was. Um, Mark chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. Why did Jesus do all these things? Why didn't he just tell everybody the whole truth from the beginning? The disciples wondered about this, and, and they wondered about why Jesus spoke in parables, right? Stories with these hidden meanings. And this is what he said. Jesus answered, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. For these people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And and you see that truth reflected throughout the Bible, that God revealed truth over generations, present truth for the present time, for the present generation. He didn't reveal everything all at once, right? And so the Holy Spirit and, and God's presence and and that communication and relationship was what brought about more and more revelation of truth. And Jesus wants everyone to be saved. He makes that very clear throughout the Bible, right? But not everyone is ready to hear the whole truth. And so he reveals it a bit at a time when they're ready to those who are ready. And then he commissions those who are ready then to go and share later on with those who were not ready before but might be more open now.
And he taught this principle to disciples when he uh, sent them out. At first, he sends them out and says, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So the same concept, same concept once again, where Jesus limits them to just the Israelites. But then after his resurrection, and of course Jesus himself uh, ministered to many Gentiles during his uh, time on earth, and then after his resurrection, he makes it very clear that he wants them to go to all the nations. And he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And the reason why I'm bringing all this up is to say that the way Jesus ministered and the way that Jesus taught people to minister was one that was bound by reality, that there is you know, this idea and the value of um, reaching everyone. But Jesus understands that you actually can't reach everyone. That's not the job of one person. He wants his collective church, his collective people to reach everyone, but for each individual, each disciple, we are called to a specific place, to a specific people at a specific time. And because we have limited time and energy, when we say yes to one thing or one person, we're actually saying no to others. We cannot be all things to all people. And so it turns out that treating people the way you want to be treated is complicated because, once again, it's not a simple rule, but it's a value that considers time and place and competing values and is led by the Holy Spirit rather than people's expectations or our own inclinations or just a black and white. Do this and don't do this. I was talking with my good friend um, Celia Kemp, who is a phenomenal theological thinker and writer. And she's been reflecting on this tension that exists between love and limits, particularly the abuse that many people demand in the name of love. And she said this that I thought was, was quite profound. She said, love is particularly powerful virtue, so it is particularly powerfully misused. So, for example, perpetrators of abuse have misused the word love to justify their selfish exercise of power. And victims of abuse have been trapped to think that staying in toxic relationship is the loving thing to do. Or bystanders have kept this abuse private, thinking that that's how they would like to be treated. But treating people the way that you, that you want to be treated is not deferring to others all the time. And of course, the challenge is to love people and treat them, you know, through the eyes of God. And that's challenging enough. But there's, there's a balance to that. It may mean allowing someone to face consequences. It may mean saying no to a good thing for a better thing. It may mean disappointing people that you wanted to please in order to do what God wants you to do and not just what people want you to do or not even just what you want to do. Even Jesus ministered with boundaries and limits while he was here as a human being. For example, Jesus didn't heal everyone. He never turned anyone away, but he also didn't heal everybody. For example, in John chapter 5, um, and I preached about this, how he went to the pool of Bethesda, and there were lots of people who were sick and disabled there. But he went to one man who had been nine, disabled for 38 years, and Jesus healed him. But what about the others? 
In Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law who was sick with the fever. And people hear about it, and so this whole town gather um, at the door. And they bring all the sick, and he heals them. But then he doesn't stay. Uh, he doesn't stay there. If you read on in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You see, Jesus, you know... I, I struggle with this, right? Like, I want to help everybody, but I look at the life of Jesus and what he did, and he was so in, connected to God the Father um, and driven by the Holy Spirit that he knew when it was time to move on. He knew when it was time to minister to other people. And um, he knew that saying yes just just to meet people's expectations was not always the right thing to do. He wasn't confused by his purpose and mission, nor did it consume him. He was right on time, meeting just the right person in just the right place. And he knew this because he took time to pray, right? He would take time to go off by himself and, and really um, wrestle. And, and even though the Bible doesn't always tell us what the content of Jesus' prayers were, it tells us that he prayed for hours, Right, that he was he was surrendering to God and submitting to God and listening and and reflecting and praying for others. And it doesn't mean when he leaves a place he didn't care about them. He knew that there would be others that God would send to do the planting and the watering, right, for the harvest. Jesus knew what his mission was and what he had to do in his limited three and a half years of public ministry. Jesus took time sometimes just to be with the disciples to teach and train them. Sometimes he took just a few of them um, to have special time with him. And, it, and, and that made the other disciples jealous. They're like, hey, how come Peter, James, and John get to go up on the mountain with you and see Elijah right, and Moses? Um, but Jesus didn't feel the need to explain himself or change his choices because of their reactions. And it really challenges me to think, well, why do we always try to be all things to all people? What, what's really driving us? Is it God or our desire to please or our flawed theology about the golden rule? How do we know where the boundaries are? How do we know what's truly loving our neighbors as ourselves? And this is a complex question because we live in a complex world where things are not so black and white. Yesterday, I read a feature by Michael Davey on the ABC News um, website called cobalt, blood cobalt. And it talks about how, you know, we, we want to combat climate change, which is a great thing to do. But in our race to adopt green energy, technologies, um, of course, are mining cobalt for lithium batteries. And unfortunately, there are con unintended co consequences that's really devastating. Um, he writes, the violent rush to extract cobalt for lithium iron batteries that power everything from smartphones to electric vehicles is unleashing a new cycle of misery and foreign domination in one of the world's poorest nations. 
massive industrial mining operations, mostly Chinese-owned, have moved into Congo, intent on dominating the next energy epoch. The big mines are accused of corruption, poisoning the locals, exploiting Congo's resources with little benefit for the country. On the fringes of the big mines, nearly a quarter million small-scale miners, including women and children, labor for a smaller piece of Congo's mineral riches. They work in tunnels and open pit mines dug by hand, exposed to radiation, cave-ins, arrest, even death. It's a really compelling and 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 um, great article. I I highly recommend that you read it and. It, it presents to us this dilemma. What do we do, right? We, we want to combat climate change, but then there are consequences also of, of green energy. You know, as human beings, this is just an example, one small example of how we are very limited in our perspective, right? We do our best and plus there's corruption, but we do our best, but decisions are not always easy. We don't always know how to treat people the way that we, way that we want to be treated. We don't know how to make choices that actually don't have unintended consequences. And so we really desperately need God to partner with us in making decisions. And so we return to the Sermon on the Mount. Right after Jesus teaches about the need for discernment in what we give to um, who at, at what time, Jesus goes on to say, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, a door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now if you dig a little further and you and you look at, well, what is that good gift that God wants to give us and how does that help us know how to treat people the, the way that we want to be treated? We can find that answer when we look at the book of Luke. So the four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are different accounts of the stories of Jesus by different eyewitnesses, right? Um, and, and together they collaborate the story of Jesus. And so the book of Luke um, tells us some details that Matthew doesn't tell us. And I like Luke a lot because Luke was a doctor who really liked history and details. And, and so he interviewed various individuals um, who were eyewitnesses. And then he wrote down his accounts, uh, the accounts from the witnesses in what he calls an orderly fashion. And so if you're, if you're like that kind of a person, the book of Luke is really great. And so the book, in the book of Luke, chapters 6 and 11, he records Sermon on the Mount. Um, and he orders it a little bit differently. And uh, this is how... Luke chapter 11, verse 9 and 13 record um, this passage that Jesus taught. Sounds very similar with one difference. So I t- say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the, to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if you ask for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And so 
the good gifts and, and Matthew's correct and Luke is correct that, that Jesus taught that God longs to give us good gifts, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of wisdom, the gift of discernment, um, just as King Solomon asked for, right? God longs to give us these good gifts and especially the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself when he taught the disciples, said, hey, when I leave, right, I'm limited in where I go and, and time and space as a human being on earth. He says, but when I leave, he says, it's better because the Holy Spirit then is 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 coming. It's the next phase in God's, God's ministry, the next phase in God's plan of redemption. And he says, the Holy Spirit is coming and he's not only going to be with you, Jesus says, he's going to be in you. And let me read to you John chapter 14. Verses 26 and 27. He, Jesus says, the advocate, right? The person who's on your side, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, when... God gives us the Holy Spirit. It dwells within us and it teaches us. And so we're not squirming with our moral dilemmas and, and our and our um and our list of rules, but we're instead praying and listening to what God is 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 prompting us to do. And we have incredible peace then when we make those decisions that we are doing God's will. Um the early Christians had this type of relationship with God. They received the Holy Spirit after Jesus resurrected. And everything they did then was was through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So for example, in Acts chapter 8, Philip is sent by the Holy Spirit on a desert road to Gaza. So he's just walking along this desert road and he doesn't know what, what he's going to do next. He's just obeying what he's been shown. And the Holy Spirit doesn't tell him everything that's going to happen. He just tell him, tells him, go on this desert road. And and so he obeys. He takes that step and obeys. And as he's walking along, the Holy Spirit then re- reveals to him the next thing to do, which is, he says, hey, there's a chariot there. Go Go approach that chariot. And Philip does. And in that chariot is an Ethiopian official who happens to be reading the book of Isaiah about about prophecies about the Messiah and, and perplexed by it. So then Philip explains it to him and tells him about Jesus. And, and the Ethiopian official is like, ah, this is, he, he knows not only from the Bible study, but by the fact that Philip is there ministering to him, that this is where God wants him to be. This is the truth. So then Philip gets baptized. And then after he gets baptized, does Philip continue to journey with him back to Ethiopia? No, it says when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And so the spirit sends and the spirit stops and the spirit moves, right? Um, when Peter, um, in Acts chapter 10, has a vision and foreigners come knocking at the door. The Holy Spirit tells Peter, go with these men, go with these men, and, and sends him to the house of Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, right? So someone else that's completely outside his comfort zone. Sometimes the Holy Spirit 
stop the missionaries from actually entering a place, right? Jesus wanted them to make disciples of all nations, but God had a timeline and not everyone, once again, was ready for all things. And so in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 8, it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by and went down to Troas. And so over and over again, the book of Acts is filled with examples of how individuals acted, not just on a rule, right? But acted from that relationship they had with God. And there are examples to us that in order for us to do to others what we would have them do to us, we need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds so that we can be guided by God to know when to say yes, when to say no, who to serve and how to do it. And this intimate relationship with God is what makes us children of the kingdom of heaven. Not a rule, but a relationship that guides how we live and treat other people. It's a lot more challenging than a list of do's and don'ts. But the good news is it's not by our strength or our might or our goodness, but by God's strength, His power, and His goodness that we can live out kingdom values. And this is what makes Christianity unique. The fact that God became a human being to dwell with us, to show us, to live out a life of love for others that had boundaries, that had limits, that had um, leading by the Holy Spirit. But not just that, God then went a step further and dwelt, dwells in us through the Holy Spirit so that in our present day, He gives us present truth to live out and treat people the way that He wants us to to say yes to certain things, to say no to certain things, and to know how to schedule our our days and, and to have the agenda, the next step that God has revealed to us. And so we are not motivated by external standards, but by internal relationship with the God who transforms us. And it all starts with saying yes to God, inviting Him to come into our hearts, and to have authority over us as our king, so that the kingdom of heaven begins now. There's a children's song that says, Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And this is my prayer for all of us, that we would say yes to Jesus coming into our hearts and teaching us how to treat people with love, how to make decisions that are difficult in a complicated world, and how to live as kingdom citizens and share that good news with others so that they too can live as children of God. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, so many times we actually, you know, skip, the relationship with you and we just want a list that we can follow. But Father, you want so desperately to be with us, to have that relationship with us. 
for us to trust you, for us to follow you, for us to seek your guidance, to depend on you. And Father, it is harder because that requires commitment. It requires surrender. But I pray that every single person listening and watching would make that decision now to not just be led by the expectations of others or ourselves, but to be led by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.